Welcome to Better Food Stories, a show that celebrates real food and the people and companies who make it. I'm your host, Audrea Greenhoff, and in this podcast, I'm sitting down with the entrepreneurs behind some of today's most innovative food brands to find out what it really takes to make it in this highly competitive space. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Better Food Stories podcast. I hope you are doing well. Um, quick life update. If you have been following along uh, this podcast, you know that I was expecting a baby recently and I am happy to announce that that healthy baby boy made his way into the world on August 11th. If you can hear him in the background there, um, life has been beautifully chaotic and we are just so blessed to have this new addition to our family we're just so so happy with our little guy and with that said i will be wrapping up with three final episodes of this podcast for the foreseeable future um obviously got a lot of my hands as of late with this little bundle of joy um so i am going to be publishing three final interviews that i recorded prior to him being born and like I had mentioned in the last episode going to be taking a bit of a hiatus to kind of really decide what I want to do with this platform so for everyone who has been following along thank you thank you thank you Um, I have a great interview for you today in this episode I'm chatting with Kate McAllier the founder of Bixie and Company an award-winning craft confectionery located in Rockland Maine This isn't your everyday candy shop. Bixby specializes in creating better-for-you candy bars, which are filled with real food inclusions and rich in fiber and protein. They're also the first bean-to-bar chocolate maker in Maine, making chocolate from directly traded cacao beans through to the end of the chocolate bar. In this interview, you'll learn what it takes to make a high-quality artisan chocolate bar, how to make sure you're getting the most out of your chocolate products, and you'll also learn how Kate's mother's battle with breast cancer inspired her to start this business, as well as Kate's advice for entrepreneurs navigating today's uncertain times. As always, you could check out links to everything I mentioned in this episode in the show notes that go along with the episode, as well as on my website, audriagreenhoff.com. Now on to my interview with Kate. Kate, first of all, welcome to the Better Food Stories podcast. I am very grateful uh, to have you here today. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I, I was so excited to um, be on your podcast. Why don't we start with you telling our audience a little bit about who you are and what your company Bixby and Co. is all about? Sure. So um, I'm Kate and I am owner and founder of Bixby and Company. We are a craft chocolate maker based in Rockland, Maine. And I started the company with my mother, Donna. Um, she's my co-founder, co-owner. And we started it in 2011. So December, 2011, practically 2012. And um, it was really with the mission to make consciously produced candy bars at the time. So we started the company with our first product, which were Bixby bars, which were cleaned up candy bars. But now we are uh, a lot larger and and more diverse in our portfolio offerings. And so now we make a variety of all sorts of confections, always with the lens of being conscientious and also 
gluten-free, organic, non-GMO, or vegan, and kosher. Fantastic. So where did the idea for the business first come from? Were you always, um, you know, passionate about candy and chocolate? Tell us about where that sort of creation sparked. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I really have, I think that there's a couple of things that happened and it was really formative in my college years. I went to NYU undergrad and um, I was living in New York City. Um, I grew up in the Hudson River Valley region of New York, which is about an hour and a half, hour and 45 north of New York City. And um, so I was studying very liberal arts focused undergraduate studies. And then um, I made the first women's golf team. I'd always been a recreational golfer, um, but the college, yeah, the college was starting up the first women's golf team, which, you know, in retrospect, why in 20, you know, oh, (laughs) eight, was that the first women's golf team? But anyway, um, um, I was excited to be on the first team. And um, those women are actually some of my, still some of my treasured and great friends. And so I was, you know, going to college uh, in New York, which is a fantastic city, and um, playing golf um, with my golf teammates. And um, at the same time, I was a freshman, and my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. And so it was really formative time in that, you know, as a family, we all sort of looked at, well, what can we do while she's undergoing, you know, cancer treatment? And the thought was we need to eat as organically as possible and foods without herbicides, pesticides, all those sort of chemicals and additives. And so we really turned on to the natural food movement, if you will. And that's where the idea for, I think that, you know, the germination for the idea of Bixby sort of started in that when I was playing golf, you know, there's long um, golf tournaments, because in college you play like 36 holes in a weekend, um, which is a lot, and you're you're walking and carrying your bag, um, and so you know candy is one of the foods that you find on golf courses. But it was all mainstream candy, and then I started to do some research on there weren't any really organic candy options at the time, and so post um, graduation I was you know, a millennial trying to figure out what was I going to, quote, do with my life. Um, Interestingly enough, it was the recession of 2009, um, 2008, 2009. And, And my parents had always encouraged me to think about, you know, quote, following your passion, but I wasn't sure what that was. And then it, it, you know, the thought was maybe I could start a business. Where would I want to make change? Where could I have a difference? And food just became this interesting medium through which I thought perhaps I could have a difference and make a difference. And um, candy was sort of that entree where I saw um, a void and a need to sort of clean up candy. And um, and so that's really the long background of how I've assessed how I ended up a candy maker. That's awesome. And now you have this fantastic brand with I'm I'm scrolling through your website right now and just everything looks so delicious I am such a food and dessert person I specifically love chocolate so much so I would love to get your take on chocolate and 
you know, we know that it comes from, from the cocoa bean, but for anybody who's not familiar with that process, take us through from, you know, from the cocoa bean to what you get on your website, whether it's a bar or a bonbon, like how, sure. how is it made traditionally? And, and it's such a great story that I think you, you really nailed. Most people don't know. And, um, you know, not even, you know, shut down uh, times. We actually do a factory sort of presentation where we describe the history of cacao. And it, it's an amazing tree and the fruit of the tree that chocolate comes from. And the tree is called Theobroma cacao, which means food of the gods. Um, translated from the you know the, the species tree and it really relates back to that history of the Aztec and Mayan cultures of where the original tree is from sort of that Central American strip and um, the the Mayan and Aztecs would drink the the chocotl, um that which is the precursor for the word chocolate as a beverage and um, so that these fresh pods that I call them, they look like little footballs almost, um, grow right off the trunk of the tree, which I've never seen another fruit that does that. Um, a skinny little, if you can imagine, tree with this huge pod sort of hanging off of it. And, um, and the process of harvesting is quite manual. You know, the farmers use varying types of knives and machetes to cut down the pods, open them, and then take out the wet fruit, the wet beans. They're in the shape of little beans. And those beans um, are surrounded in this sticky, delicious pulp. And um, they go through a process of fermentation and then drying. And, um, and so I'm, I'm kind of shortening it a little bit. But at that point, they, the beans after harvest, fermentation, and drying are then typically shipped all over the world. Um, and we source our beans from Haiti, Guatemala, Dominican Republic, and Belize, and um, we bring the beans directly from those countries uh, via a great broker partner um, through New Jersey, and um, and then up on trucks up here to Maine. Um, so it's quite a journey. Uh, before we even start yeah. to make chocolate, a lot goes into um, that process, and we're actually waiting for our bean uh, delivery to come. And um, things are so much slower coming out of New Jersey for good reason. Um, we're, we're waiting for our shipment any day of beans to arrive um, in, in this interesting time. We're an essential business as a food manufacturer, so we're still operating, albeit with a smaller skeleton team. But um, that's, that's just an example. So first you have to get your beans and um, we're certified organic. So the places from which and the quantity of beans that you one can source is sort of much more limited than the than the mass you know cocoa um the really big chocolate companies as i'll call it source predominantly from west africa um and and you know with somewhat lack of traceability and issues of child and potential slave labor so we really make it a point to have a clean and direct supply chain that we understand who, where, what, when, how, and why. Um, and, and so we take that organic certification quite seriously and it's quite a, a lot of work. Um, and, and so just to bear that, you know, USDA organic seal is, um, quite a process, um, 
So the beans arrive um, and then we start to make chocolate. So the first thing we do is sort the beans and um, that's sort of like a hand process of sorting them. And then we roast them and we have a roasting machine that if you can imagine is sort of like a circular drum that rotates and the beans roast in the roaster. Um, each origin we have developed a different roast profile and then the beans are transferred from the roaster, they're cooled and then they are winnowed. And winnowing is the process of separating the outer husk of the bean from the interior nib. And then the cacao nib is what we make chocolate out of. So that's what you melt or cook down and then it becomes liquefied and, and goes into your different products? Yes. So the we use a stone grinder that grinds the cacao nibs up to three days um, to reach the micron level. And it's actually fascinating because... Um, the nib is this amazing, you know, food unto itself. Um, and it has cocoa butter within it. So depending on the origin, it can be up to 50% cocoa butter. And under pressure of the stones, the cocoa butter gets released and then the constant friction and the heat that's generated off that friction, it all liquefies. And that at that point, it looks like chocolate. Um, whereas, you know, before all of that, it still doesn't really... When we're doing our sort of presentation, people can't see yet that it's chocolate. Um, and then we we store the the chocolate after it's been stone ground for about three days, um, and it ages for about a week, depending on um, you know availability and timing. And then we um, use that chocolate in our tempering machines to make our various different confections, be it from single origin bars. Um, that have the imprint of our octopus um, or truffles, um, bonbons that we really try and highlight local, seasonal, fresh, amazing ingredients. So right now we have various flavors like strawberry rhubarb, um, goat cheese, lavender, honey, wow. uh, mimosa, um, and I main maple. And I could go on, but um, it's it's really <laughs> it's so fun to highlight the different seasons and then um, collaborate with various different companies. Um, we launched a bourbon bar right before this, where we infuse the nibs with bourbon. And I think wow. during the time of you know pan pandemic, um, everyone <laughs> needs a little more bourbon. Um, so. Sure. <laughs> it's been it's been a funny um thing where you know th there'll be parents buying and then adding on a bourbon bar <laughs> for the adults <laughs> can't blame them definitely that's funny how did you I mean it seems like such a fascinating and complex process to to make the different confections even just the basic chocolate where it starts was there you know, when you were getting into it, was there a lot of trial and error? Did you seek out, um, you know, partnerships and assistance to learn, you know, the process? And then how are you making your flavors um, specifically, like when you talk about the bonbons and truffles and that sort of thing? Um, how has that evolved? Sure. So I took a training program uh post NYU in New York at the Institute of Culinary Education in pastry arts. And so that was where I 
uh, hone my skills on um, fundamental chocolate making. And then interestingly enough, um, about two years after I graduated, they had a program, the first ever, I think, bean to bar chocolate making program. Because um, in pastry school, when I was there, it was more, you know, you source chocolate, melt it and make confections. Um, but then they had a fantastic program on bean to bar. And I said, I have got to go take this class. Because um, we started originally as a they call it like chocolate melter, <laughs> not mm. a chocolate maker in the sense that we were, and we still source some chocolate because there's certain products we're not able to make enough of our own chocolate yet. Um, although I'm working hard to try and expand our capacity. Um, but we, um, yeah, it was a lot of research, late night studying, um, classes, trial and error. Um, I think that, you know, despite all the research and um, all the preparedness I tried to have, um, you know, it was time to turn things on. Um, <laughs> certain things did not go as planned and, and you, you have to be sort of hands-on to learn it all. And climate, climate control is huge in chocolate making. So for example, you know, having the right air conditioning and the right airflow and the right humidity control um, are all incredibly important um, to chocolate making. So it, yeah, excellent question. It, it, it's a lot of work, um, and development. And then in terms of, um, how do we come up with flavors? Um, I have a fantastic team that and we collaborate and, um, you know, brainstorm and, and think about what's on trend and what also sort of what, what is the comfort, um, that everyone's seeking and, Sometimes, you know, we're avant-garde, maybe a little too avant-garde, but I like to push boundaries. Um, and then I, I'm always blown away by sometimes the tried and true just always win. <laughs> you know, yeah. like um, we're in Maine, so Maine blueberry always is popular um, because everyone loves Maine blueberries, um, for example, so... So now that you are deep in the chocolate and candy making game, I would imagine through all your years of research and trial and error, you've learned quite a bit. What can you tell us as consumers when we're looking for artisan chocolate or artisan confections? What should we be looking for? And what's different than, you know, buying something sort of mass market? Sure. So I think one of the things to look out for um, certainly is percentage. So, you know, the, if you're looking for a dark chocolate, does the product indicate percentage? So, for example, you know, 70% is a higher average percentage cacao than normal. So um, shockingly enough, there's a minimum requirement of cacao that's the, you know, cacao nib that we talked about mm -hmm. that's required for something to be called chocolate, according to the federal regulations. And do you, mm -hmm. can you take a guess what that percentage is? Uh, the minimum percent, uh, 30, maybe? It's, it's 11 percent. 11? Wow, only. Okay. Right. So the mass market products, you know, have probably 
very low percentages of cacao. So you want to look for the higher the percentage, um, the more you're learning about that product and what goes into it. And if, if it's, if people are calling out the percentages, then that that's one indicator. Another is origin. Do does the origin appear on the label? Can you understand where exactly the beans were coming from? Um, or does the company talk about that? And then the other um, aspect is the, um, I would say the use of interesting ingredients. So for example, are they using real fruit or are they using fruit flavoring? That's so interesting. And I didn't know that about the, the percentages. I did want to ask, um, I thought the percentages were primarily for flavor profile. You know, you typically see 70% or 80% dark chocolate, but if they're not listing percentages at all, we can maybe look more into it and see that maybe it's made up of other ingredients and not primarily the, the chocolate. Is that what you're saying? Well, so on the back end of um, any kind of ingredient label, you'll see what is the first ingredient within the chocolate. And mm -hmm. if it's chocolate liqueur or I'm trying to think what another name for it. Chocolate liqueur is an industry term. It's not actually alcoholic. It's more, mm -hmm. it means liquefied nib. Um, okay. Again, there's a lot of different terminology out there, which is fascinating. Um, debates on cacao versus cocoa, um, what's the proper terminology, but I would say if sugar is the first ingredient, that would be an indicator that it's probably more like 50% cacao, um, whereas, you know, milk chocolate and white chocolate typically always have lesser percentages, mm -hmm. more in the range of 30, 34%. Um, cacao and milk chocolate and then white chocolate is actually cocoa butter sugar and typically vanilla um, so yeah. we just launched a whole line of vegan white chocolate bars and that was really pushing forward the notion of what white chocolate could be so instead of dairy milk we used coconut milk and so it's cocoa butter coconut milk powder and then we use um, various fruits or spices to generate the color in the product so golden milk is um i just love that drink it's from the ayurvedic um history and it's turmeric cardamom black pepper and ginger mm -hmm. at least that's our combination and so the the white quote chocolate looks this stunning orange um so the bar is orange and it's from the turmeric that we include. I love that. That sounds really and good. <laughs> it's delicious. I have to send you some samples. <laughs> um, and then uh, our dark milk chocolate, um, we use 45% cacao. So way over that 30-ish percent that's typical in the milk chocolate realm. So I think that a lot of people in the craft realm, and you know, I, I put us in the craft realm, are playing with and redefining these various different categories, which were created um, kind of by bigger companies. So um, I think that that's, that's the new frontier of what is white chocolate? What is milk chocolate? And redefining those various 
products. Yeah, and the more you see artisan brands like yourself, I feel like it's almost comparable to like wine or coffee, like that you're seeing where the, you know, the beans have different taste and flavor, the, you know, the, the percentages are percentages uh, different in taste, depending on where the bean comes from. It absolutely can be dependent on the bean origin. That's a fabulous question. And and then it can also be impacted by roasting. So for example, when we do tastings, um, we sample, for example, 70% Guatemalan versus 70% Dominican. Mm-hmm. And some people will say, well, this one tastes sweeter. And it's the exact same sugar content in both. And so exactly to your point, based on the bean and the origin, that microclimate or the roast or who knows, even the crop can impact the the flavor so it and that's that's really come out in the craft movement um where people are indicating origin and um going after that unique flavor profile more of like a fruity red um berry flavor profile versus just that brownie very chocolate note um, so a lot of the, a lot of our origins have a strong fruit flavor. And I think for years that was not desired. You know, I think big chocolate really tries to deliver one thing all the time that's replicatable. And so they roast out a lot of flavor. And, um, I think our mission is really to highlight each origin and say, Hey, this is, this is what Haiti can taste like. And this is what Guatemala can taste like. Um, and so, and that's really meaningful to me because I've been able to travel to some of these countries and meet the farmers and um, yeah, that's been, that. yeah. you must have your fair share of traveling. That's so cool. It is. It is. I was going to go on a trip to Colombia in June and it's been canceled um, for good reason. But right. I, I really think that for me, that's been one of the big gifts of um, this experience of being able to learn so much about chocolate and go to new parts of the world that I've never been to. And um, it's been really meaningful. Going back to your life before you started this company, um, you, you talked a little bit about um, your life in college and how the company sort of began did you always have, um, you know, growing up an inkling that you wanted to be an entrepreneur or do something uh, like this? I would have to say that, no, I, I really developed the, <laughs> um, some people might call it crazy <laughs> entrepreneurial spirit. Um, I think more in my, in my college years, um, I was very much a, a rule follower <laughs> um, when I was much younger. Um, but I think that I grew into it and it was with a lot of encouragement and um, opportunity. You know, I think it was a, and still is a good time in my life where I, I was able to do that because I was able to move home for a time and live with my parents and, um, and they were tremendously helpful and continue to be incredibly supportive. Um, so I think that that was, that helps, you know, to have that 
family support. Um, I'm not sure I could have done it. I know I could not have done it if I had done it alone. Um, so I think that support network was incredibly important. And, and I've built up a great network of, of fellow entrepreneurs. And I think that that has really helped um, me tremendously in navigating this crazy journey. Um, and there are people that I can text um, late at night and they will get back to me. And, um, and it's just amazing to have that support. You know, in this time that we're in, it's so unprecedented and kind of everyone is sort of, I would say, for lack of a better term, winging it when it comes to figuring out what's next. I feel like nobody has been here before and there's so many uncertainties. For anybody who might be needing to switch gears or, you know, kind of needing to reinvent, what kind of advice do you have for, for those types of folks? Absolutely. So I, throughout this time, have relied heavily on on so many of the resources that I have in the past. And I think that those same resources are just tremendous. Um, and they are SCORE, um, which is actually part of the, the SBA support network. And um, you can get a free SCORE mentor um, and talk about business and your career and, and how to navigate just in general business, right? But in the time of this um, great uncertainty, my SCORE mentor has been uh, tremendous, um, as she always is. Um, but she's just been a phenomenal resource and totally free. Um, the Women's Business Centers, which are in every state, also provide free business counseling to women-owned um, businesses. And then I found tremendous support through my Tory Birch Foundation support network. So I uh, accessed the Tory Birch Foundation through the Fellows um, Program, and they have done phenomenal webinars and programming for um, women in business during this time, and top shelf um, amazing content content that that is just phenomenal to help navigate this period. So I think resources like those are incredibly important um, for people to help figure out what are the next steps. Wonderful. Thanks so much for that. And I'll definitely uh, include links to some of those in the show notes for this episode so people could check that out. Thank you. That's really great advice. Before uh, we wrap up, I typically do some fun closing questions with all my guests. So if you're up for that, we can dive into those. Yeah, absolutely. So number one is, what is the last movie or TV show that you watched? The last uh, TV show that I watched was Mrs. America, the new Hulu show with Kate Blanchett. Oh, yeah. I keep seeing uh, previews for that, and it's on my list. What are your thoughts? I love it. It's all about the women's um, movement with Gloria Steinem and uh, Betty Friedan and it, it, it's just you know all the sort of women that I've read about and obviously followed but then seeing it reenacted in really stellar set and costume design I, I've just really enjoyed the level of detail and attention that the show has brought to that period of time. Okay, number two, if you can only eat three foods for the rest of your life, what would they be? <laughs> I have to say chocolate. <laughs> um, I would say chocolate, 
cheese, like very good local cheese. And um, really good. Can I make it bread slash pasta? Sure. (laughs) I like that. Good combo. You can't go wrong with bread. I think bread would be one of mine too, especially like really good, like local, some nice loaf of crusty bread. Yum. Okay. Number three, where is your favorite place that you have traveled to? Oh, my favorite place. Um, or one of your favorite places if you can't choose one. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, I would say France holds a special spot for me in in my personal um, travel past, as well as um, certain parts of China. Um, So I did a school year abroad program in uh, Beijing, China, in my senior year of high school, and um, traveled to some remote, um, you know, sections not out not outside of those major metropolitan areas so I went to um, Xinjiang which is the most western province in China and that was it's on the border of Afghanistan and um, Russia and it's it's sort of way out there Um, and it was by the Gobi Desert um, and that was a, a really phenomenal experience. Okay, and finally, what's one thing most people would never guess about you? <laughs> um, probably that I play golf. That's a good one. Do you still play? I do. I, I love it. It's um, a great relaxing um, experience for me, <laughs> you know, to disconnect from my business and go be outside and um, you know, D hairnet, D chocolate, and um, yeah. get outside and golf. I live in Florida. There are a lot of golf courses here. I've taken one golf lesson in my whole life, which I think is the only time I've ever played. It's a lot harder than it lo- It's very difficult. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I won't take up too much more of your time. Um, but finally, before I let you go, where can people learn more about you and your business? Absolutely. So we are available. The best bet right now is BixbyCo.com. Um, and that's where we're doing our shipping, uh, direct to consumers or, um, we have curbside option, but then you can also find us in some stores. So we excitedly are launching in CVS um, during <laughs> all of this um, craziness, um, which is like amazing um, with two of our products, our sea salted caramels and our peanut butter bites. Um, and so that's, uh, that's happening now. That sounds delicious and also sounds like essential snacks that one would need during this time. So congratulations. That's great. (laughs) Thank you.